You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, you know, we talk a lot about how cheap UK equities are. I mean, endlessly, right? And last week we had uh, Rob Arnott telling us that there is trade of the decade, et cetera. And you and I both agree with that. We, we believe in this story. But we're always so busy talking about how cheap UK equities are. We very rarely talk about how incredibly expensive American equities are. Right? We're always looking at one end of, of the thing and, and kind of ignoring the other, because the key thing here is, is partly that UK equities are cheap, but also that US equities are still off the scale expensive. Yeah, I mean, the, the main reason for that may be because we're horribly embarrassed. But um, <laughs> the, Why are we embarrassed? I'm not embarrassed. The, basic, the problem with US equities is that they are expensive, but they've been expensive for an insanely long amount of time compared to kind of like history. So, and I think that this is best summed up in a, a, a kind of piece of research from US asset managers, GMO. And they've got a strategist there called James Monty, who... Uh, so good. Excellent, yeah, excellent kind of writer. And I remember uh, prior to 2008, he was really on the ball about it coming up. And then afterwards, one thing that really sticks in my mind is that he wrote about this basically portfolio of bombed out stocks at a time when everyone else was just like, don't touch the stock market with a 10-foot passport. And if you just bought the ones that he'd looked at, then I mean, you, you made like multiples of your money, like probably like a 10-fold return. Why didn't we do that? Hang um, on, stop. Oh, we read that. Why, why didn't we do that? Oh, we see. I like. Why to, are we still here? I like to blame compliance reasons and uh, you know, all that sort that of stuff. Well. But it wasn't us. It was compliance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing is, it's just it's the admin. It's the admin, isn't it? But pain <laughs> of my life. If I was better admin, I would be rich. Um, no, it's both of us. I mean, this is the problem. And it's one of the things that we do. I'm going off topic here, but one of the things that I always think about whenever we write anything for our readers and listeners, how big is the admin leap that they have to take to do anything? So hard. Yeah, and that's important. I mean, actually, that's, I mean, that, regardless of your views on cryptocurrency, that is one of the big issues we with Bitcoin and always was, and that's just the primary admin. reason I don't admin. own any. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, and no customer service when you get the admin wrong. Yeah, right. That's my problem with crypto. Although to be fair, that that expand, extends to just about every kind of service these days, anyway. So <laughs> you know. might as well buy Bitcoin. Might anyway, well. but <laughs> that's not a recommendation. Um, 
Yeah, so back to James. So, so James, like in March 2012, I think it was, wrote an article for GMO. The GMO have always been, you know, that's where Jeremy Grantham works and they've always been on the value side, etc., etc. But he basically pointed out that US stocks were very expensive, but also US profit margins were very high. Um, so say the long run average from about 1950 was 6% and they were running at about 9%. He came up with various reasons as to why that might be, but to be honest, they're not important just now because it's, it's a complicated issue and it's a bit of a distraction. His point was that corporate margins should, in theory, mean revert. So in other words, they should go back from 9% to 6%, and therefore you would end this US outperformance. And just in case anyone's wondering, the reason that corporate profit margins should presumably kind of you know, mean revert is because capitalism... So you get a free market, one company starts making outsized profit margins, the others come along, they all compete with each other and the margins come down. And so obviously that didn't actually happen and US stocks continue to outperform for the, the following decade. And and even even now, we've kind of gone back into this weird situation where we're kind of going back to growth outperforming value again, despite the recent changes in interest rates, etc. And so James is a taking another look at this in a paper that you can download off the GMO website. And he's basically sort of like saying, look, oh, where did I go wrong? And again, that's more about the economics side of it, and it's not actually that important to our discussion. His point, though, was that, okay, I've been wrong for the past 10 years. What happens if... Yes, on this on this one, definitely, yeah, I recognise that. Um, I've been wrong for the past 10 years. What happens if profit margins just stay the same? And the point he was making was that, well, but... The thing is, valuations have increased so much that even if you think that corporate profit margins are going to stay at 9%, US stocks are sitting on a Shiller PE or a, a CAPE ratio of about 30, which makes them as expensive as they were at the top of the tech bubble in 2000. And that, that was the most expensive US stocks, or stocks pretty much anywhere brief, have ever brief been. Interruption. Brief interruption, UK market is on a Shiller PE of more like 14, so half the price, just saying. Exactly. And then he was saying, so his point is that's even if profit margins stay where they are. If profit margins do actually revert to the mean, so go back to the 6% overall, then if you adjust the, the cape for that, the cape is more like 45.50. And that's way higher than it was even at the dot-com bubble. Um, and again, bear in mind, dot-com bubble was essentially the most expensive US stocks have ever been. Um, and so his point was that so even if you think everything's going to go perfectly correct and it's going to be absolutely fine, then if margins stay high and valuations don't change, you're still looking at roughly a three percent real return based on uh, real real annual return based on GMO's views, which is much lower than you would normally expect to get from equities. You know, it's not enough money to get paid for taking the risk of buying equities. And his point I mean, is a, if, positive, a positive real return of any kind feels kind of good. Oh, yeah, you? but not, we're talking over a decade. I mean, you would have hoped that something else would do better than that already. I mean, you would have hoped. You're right. I mean, maybe, maybe it won't. But I mean, I think the index, index linked kind of like UK bonds are now offering a real yield of 1% over 30 years. So, you know, when you look at it, 3% is not that great. So, anyway, so that's, that is the, uh, the, the kind of, I've probably butchered all the academic side of that paper, but long story short, even if things go perfectly for the next 10 years, US stocks are rampantly overvalued and they okay, could fall. We know they won't go perfectly. We know they won't go perfectly. Did he give any 
sense of what it might be that would bring those corporate margins down? Is it the return of the power of labor? Is it deglobalization? Is it all these things that we've been talking about? Well, Is there actually, anything he, in particular? He, he doesn't address that in this particular piece because he's looking, I mean, his argument, and it's all about accounting identities basically, but his argument that the thing that has enabled corporate profit margins to be so high is the US running a kind of massive deficit and that was that's the big sort of change that's happened um a kind of permanent deficit because his argument is basically that well it must be coming from somewhere um all of this extra money essentially um and then there's all sorts of arguments about you know intangible assets and kind of like you know the tech tech companies are okay, less capital this is why you said earlier earlier in this conversation do you want to go delve deeply <laughs> yeah, into the detail exactly, yeah, now now we're finding exactly. out why john didn't want to touch the detail with a barge ball <laughs> there's, there's something called the kalecki equation in there and i'm like no no let's let's not let's All right, not the, get into stop, that stop stop you're boring <laughs> the listeners you're boring them we're They've done already here switched off sorry come back jim mellon's on next. everyone come back we're about to talk to jim mellon listen we're going to talk to somebody now who doesn't make very many errors at all Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who do know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Sumset Webb. This week, a conversation with Jim Mellon, chairman of Burnbury and well-known investing guru. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It is lovely to have you on today. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, listen, I did, and I'm sorry about this. In fact, I'm really sorry about this. But before I sat down to record, I asked on Twitter, what questions any of my followers might have for you. And then I sat back to wait for lots of interesting conversations on, you know, how to weather inflationary times and biotechnology and agronomics and all kinds of technology, etc. Instead of which they all said, ask him how he thinks Brexit is going. So I'm sorry, we have to start there. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable question. I mean, obviously, it's neither going as well as the Brexiteers would have hoped, nor as badly as the Remainers would have uh, suggested. I'm not sure hoped, but... Um, I think hoped is fair. I, I can't say there's a lot of good stuff. I can't say a lot of good stuff about the government's handling of the situation. And as you know, um, if it had been me in charge, and or you in charge, the day after Brexit, we would have applied for a Norwegian-style trade agreement with the European Union, which would have been so much better than the current situation. I mean, I think that, you know, things are getting better rather than worse. And uh, I, I don't believe all the predictions, which, as you know, are generally wrong about 4% of GNP is going to be lost over the next 10 years or whatever as a result of Brexit. And I do see there are some signs of equilibrium and particularly in services trade where the UK is doing very well at the moment, funnily enough. But overall, you know, I've got my regrets. I mean, that's that's simple as that. And although I didn't have a vote in the referendum, I think I would have been neutral as opposed to have been uh, so in favour of it. I mean, I think it's caused much more chaos than I would have expected. I'm not saying that we should now try and rejoin because I think that uh, that's probably not the best thing, but we should definitely try and do this Norway arrangement or EA arrangement that should have been done ab initio. It's been very badly handled by the Tories. I mean, I, I think you and I are both uh, worried about a Labour government, and so we should be, but 
the Tories have really not covered themselves in glory in any respect in the last five years or six years. No, it's interesting. They've been in power for a long time. It's hard to see the positives they they leave behind. I mean, I, I agree with you on that, and that uh, like a lot of sort of semi soft Brexiteers, um, I kind of assumed that an after after type arrangement would be come to very quickly. But I'm increasingly seeing evidence that we will come to pretty much that kind of deal. It's just taking quite a long time. So now, when anyone asks me how I think Brexit is going, I'm falling back on too early to tell, uh, which I think it probably. <laughs> Probably yeah. is, which it probably is. But there is, I mean, there is a big positive to Brexit uh, for investors, and it's a long-term positive, which is that by discouraging international investors from coming into our market in the shorter term, we've had a whopping great Brexit discount and anything else discount on our equity market. And that's, I think, and John and I both have written about this endlessly. And I think we're beginning to see people beginning to agree with us. That's made the UK equity market phenomenally cheap and a phenomenally good long-term opportunity for investors. And you and I have discussed this before, but are you still on board with that view? Yeah, I definitely am. And, uh, you know, we we talked uh, around a year ago about exactly this. And actually, the UK market's not done so badly since then. And the pound has been relatively strong. And I think it will continue to be strong. That having been said, you know, if the British government wasn't intent on throwing Molotov cocktails in the way of a relatively robust economy in the form of increased corporation tax, stealth taxes by raising, by basically putting more people into the 40% uh, tax band and all sorts of other taxes, as well as, you know, not unpicking regulations that should have been unpicked ages ago. Well, and adding more regulation on top, relentless additions of regulation. So we suffer from this sort of huge heaviness of, of regulation before we even start on anything else. I was thinking about this the other day when everyone was complaining on the same day about too much regulation in the UK economy and more and more regulation coming in. And at the same time, complaining about obesity uh, in the uh, and the effect that that has on the NHS. And I was like, it's the same kind of thing. You know, these big sort of burdens weighing down uh, our NHS and weighing down our economy, on the other hand. And what, what do we do about them? And are we taking the... I've interrupted you. You carry on. You carry on. No, but I, I'm with you. I mean, you know, why is the government so damned incompetent? And, you know, it's just... It beggars belief, really. You know, there are obviously some very good ministers out there. I don't think Rishi's doing a bad job. He seems to have stabilized the ship and, you know, he internationally he's doing quite well. But there's just so much more that could be done. And they had an 80-seat majority. I mean, they could have done so much. They could have done anything they wanted. Mm. And it's just a waste, wasted opportunity. That having been said, you know, I read, and I don't mean to say I read it in any great detail or with great linguistic skill, but I read the French newspaper every day and I read, Zeitung, which is Germany's equivalent of the sun every day. And, you know, we uh, think that we're in this sort of economic malaise that's specific to the UK. It's just not true. Every other country in Europe thinks it's in a dire situation as well. And there's a lot of inward looking stuff going on in Europe, as well as in the United mm. States. Mm. So uh, while we hunt is going on about how we're talking ourselves into, you know, going backwards economically, uh, every other country that i I can read their press of is doing exactly the same and including where I spend a lot of time, which is in Spain. 
Okay, so is there still value in the UK equity market? With that in mind, then, if everyone's talking themselves into a funk and UK equities, which are were certainly at the top end, very international anyway, uh, trading at a 35, 40% discount to similar companies in the US, seems like a no-brainer to buy those. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I'm sure that the uh, the large sort of fossil fuel related companies like Shell and BP are good long-term investments. I'm sure that our defense stocks are good long-term investments. I'm sure that our financial services companies are good long-term investments. We're not like the, the US banking system where basically the money market funds have completely upended the whole banking model for regional banks and where there are far too many banks in the first place. I think the insurance companies are also attractive. Some of our investment trusts are attractive to buy. There's a whole plethora of stuff that you can buy in the UK with long-term confidence. Whereas, you know, if you buy something in the US, you are paying a very distinct premium uh, at a time when, you know, earnings are all-time high as a percentage of GDP in the US and are probably going to start falling. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Let's, let's buy the UK and carry on buying the UK. And, you know, as for London losing its position as the largest market in Europe, well, I, I actually don't think it really matters. London is still the preeminent or at least equal preeminent uh, financial capital in the world. It's not, there's no sign that it's losing its preeminence in the whole of Europe. Only a trickle of people have moved elsewhere. And as I said at the beginning, uh, services exports are at an all-time high from the UK, which mm -hmm. is our main strength. So although, you know, the government's doing everything it can to, to sort of put the reins on the economy, the economy is being remarkably resilient. And there's no doubt in my mind, and I said this from September last year onwards, that rather than being the weakest economy in the G7 this year, we'll be somewhere near the top. The UK is remarkably resilient as an economy. And we also have the effect, uh, whether you like it or not, and I actually don't mind it, of very, very fast flowing inward immigration. And it, that is going to add to our economy in coming years. I mean, it's not but fast. But it adds to our economy. It adds to our economy in terms of GDP, but we're not sure that it adds in terms of GDP per head, are we? Which is the thing that really matters. We're not really interested in what the overall GDP of the UK is. We're interested in whether individuals are seeing their incomes rise and their living standards rise. And we don't necessarily see that with large waves of immigration. Governments like it because it means they can say, oh, look, GDP is going up. But do individuals like it if it's not actually improving their personal standard of living? Well, that's a very good point. And I think in the short term, almost certainly it's going to be dilutive of GDP per capita. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, a couple of things that can be done about that, including allowing migrants to work much earlier or even, I wouldn't say forcing them, but making it attractive for them to work. And secondly, training them in skill sets that the UK is lacking in. And I think also, importantly, that we need to target migrants who are of a younger demographic, because, you know, if XYZ comes in and then brings his whole elderly relative cohorts with him or her, that is definitely going to constitute a drain on the uh, resources of the economy. But longer term, every single developed country, including the one I'm going to tomorrow, in particular Singapore, 
is facing a major demographic crisis. You, you've talked about this before. I've talked about it, but it's actually becoming, it's one of those crises that doesn't really hit you until it hits you. We're mm. basically facing population collapse in many countries around the world. And far from discouraging migrants in 10 or 20 years time, we'll be begging them to come to the UK or to Germany or yeah. to wherever else is short of people. And although we're not- but on the, the other hand, if this, if this is a global dynamic, which it will become, there aren't that many countries left in the world where the population is growing very fast and very few left and mostly in sub-Saharan Africa where the fertility rate is sort of over four or five, right? So if we're suffering from the potential for populations to decline in Western countries now and in uh, pretty much every other country over the next few decades, should we be trying to deal with this problem by importing other people's kids or should we be trying to find a way to manage our economies and our societies such that we can cope with our aging populations? I mean, I give you Japan, for example, which is ahead of the game here and has been beginning to figure out ways to make it work rather than thinking, geez, we can't be doing it without young people. Let's get someone else's in. Well, Japan is a very, as you know, much better than me, that Japan is a very particular country in the sense that it, it really doesn't. It's quite um, xenophobic and it's definitely not multicultural by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, Japan also has an older population that is quite happy. A lot of them are quite happy to go out and work and continue to be employed at lesser salaries than they got when they were at the peak of their, mm. their mm. careers. And uh, admittedly, a lot of it is non-jobs, you know, just sort of like opening and shutting barriers and things like that. But flag waving. Uh, it's a very, very different society to ours. I'm sure you know this, but by 2070, which is not that far off, uh, more than half of the G7's population will be over 65 years old. And in some, some of those countries, not ours, but... Including us. No, no. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll be over 65, 50, well, you know, we'll all be over 65 much sooner than that. But the thing is that in some of those countries, and uh, you're going to see that Japan obviously is one example of that, the population will be 75% over 65 years old. And so there are two things that need to be done. One is to prevent people from becoming frail and you know, build robustness into older people. And that's something that, you know, longevity science is trying to do. I don't think it's doing it fast enough, to be quite honest. And then the second thing is to let, you know, the population know that the good old days of being born, learning, earning, retiring and expiring are gone, that everything is changing, that life is a different trajectory now. And that they can expect to be working much longer so that you don't get the riots like you got in France over the 62 to 64 pension uh, age. And you don't get the sort of mass resistance to uh, later retirement because we are all going to have to retire, not that you and I. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the US and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I'm mad for it. I'm absolutely mad for it. I mean, I, when, my, when, I, when I have fantasies and dreams, I imagine that when I went into work, instead of going into the private sector and all that, I'd gone into the public sector as, I don't know, a mid-ranking civil servant or something. And now I was looking forward to retiring in a couple of years on an RPI-linked defined, be, defined benefit pension. I could join all those other 55-year-olds on cruises up and down the Danube. I dream of it all the time. Uh, yeah, I, I don't believe that, actually. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't see you doing that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not thinking hard enough. <laughs> I don't know where to go now. I want to talk about Japan and I want to talk about longevity science and where you're investing there. Let's start with Japan. Let's start with Japan and investing in Japan. You know, Warren Buffett has just come out of, of Japan and said, we're not done investing in Japan yet. You know, those are his exact words, right? And you know that he's got big holdings in in uh, some of the big uh, Japanese conglomerates and the trading companies, which he thinks are fantastic. And he started investing in them a while back. They pretty much doubled since he started. And now he's looking at Japan and he's saying, I'm buying more there. I'm staying in. And this is not to do, obviously, because this is Warren Buffett. This is not to do with him expecting a bull market in the next next month, two months, three months, if then he can sell. Obviously, he's in for the very long term. And these are now pretty much his only big non-US investments. So it's a it's an it's a huge sort of expression of faith in Japan that everyone is generally incredibly pessimistic about. Not me. John and I have been bulls on Japan for so long it's kind of embarrassing now. But now we've got Warren Buffett walking by our side, I think we can feel a bit more confident. So I'm wondering, given that we've just talking about the value market that is the UK, are you also positive with me and Warren on the value market that is Japan? Yeah. So whereas Warren Buffett has billions of dollars invested in Japan, I've got a few million invested in Japan. And I I think that uh, it'll do very well. And, you know, when I started my career a long time ago, I was um, a kind of Japanese analyst, possibly when you were younger as well, Merrin, although you're obviously the age gap is significant between you and me. But when obviously when I was younger, I had to write out all the questions at night for the meeting the next day and research the company and do all that sort of stuff. I honestly don't think any junior people in any companies do that anymore. They, there's a sort of uh, sense of entitlement. I, entitlement or just like, you know, I, I don't need to spend my evenings doing this homework on behalf of the boss. When I was doing that, you could throw a dart on any 
a quick number on the Japanese stock market and it would be, yeah, it did, didn't really matter, it was going up. And John Greenwood, who worked at GT at that time, you know, a great monetarist was, you know, propounding the fact that uh, money supply dictated stock markets and it worked. And then it stopped working in about 1989 because the Japanese market went ballistic and it was just ridiculously overpriced. And um, I think any market that's ridiculously overpriced, you walk away from. And Warren Buffett walks into markets when they're underpriced. So UK and Japan, yes. The difference between the UK and Japan is that although there's talk of activism and you know foreigners stirring up trouble in Japan and trying to unravel the cross shareholdings in Japan and the uh, undervaluation of the book values and all that sort of stuff, very unlikely that there'll be a lot of takeover activity in Japan for reasons that you're very familiar with. Whereas I do think that we're going to see some mega deals coming to the UK. Uh, PE companies, um, anyone with dry powder uh, is going to be coming and snapping up our, our possibly some of our biggest companies over the next year or two. And maybe that's why the pound's been relatively strong against the Japanese yen, because actually the yen is much more undervalued than really any major currency in the world. And it just, I don't really understand why the yen hasn't been going up. I don't know, do you have any view on that? Um, I know that they're going to remove YCC at some point in the relatively near future. So I, I really don't understand. Well, with that in mind, that there are things that you don't understand, which is unusual. Um, the money you do have in Japan, what kind of stocks is it in? Uh, I've been like you. I buy the I buy uh, trust. So the Nippon, uh, the Nippon Activist Value Fund is one, even though it's not very active. Nippon Active Value just just a, a merger announced. Yeah, with, well, they're, um, taking, uh, they're taking over yeah. a small trust, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Good. Okay. That's an actual value fund. I was looking today, earlier today, at some of the um, Japan trusts, and very few of them have followed the Japanese market as a whole, i.e., they've all underperformed, which is kind of interesting and suggests to me that when they looked at Japan, they think to themselves, well, we should be in Japan because we're Japanese trusts, but we have very little faith in it as a whole. We have little faith in the economy and little faith in the stock market. So we'll invest in international growthy stuff. And so they've missed the more value end of the market, which is the bit where the outperformance has been, which is kind of interesting. Whereas a Nippon active value, one one hopes, has been uh, diving around in active value and not done, not done the same. Yeah, I mean, I bought into Zena uh, recently, um, and I bought individual stocks. So I think Sony is a real cracker of a stock, actually, because if you look at it compared to the U.S. media companies, and Sony effectively is a media and gaming company, it looks very cheap and seems to be quite well managed and you're you know buying it about 10 or 11 times earnings and and you know as far as i'm concerned that's that's a deal so i've been buying sony and uh i've got some of the car companies i've got toyota uh which you know when tesla goes bust which it will you know toyota will uh will continue and it's it's a very cheap company something to note actually is that two things on electric vehicles one is that the Chinese are now producing electric vehicles of as high a standard or higher standard than the Americans and the Germans. And they will start exporting in very large quantities. And there are 40 electric vehicle companies in China, so the price competition is going to be very intense. And secondly, the electric vehicles are not the great panacea that they seemed because, you know, you can't put them on ferries, you can't put them in certain car parks, you can't put them on bridges because the batteries are so heavy 
uh, and when they catch fire, they cause massive destruction. So I just think we have to be a little bit careful about EVs. But hang on, I need to go back there. You can't put electric cars on ferries. You, you, they are banning electric cars from a lot of ferries now. So if you want to drive your car to one of the Scottish islands. In fact, no, forget that because you'll never find a ferry to get on. That's not really an issue, is it? No, no ferries in Scotland, so you can't be banned from taking an electric car on a ferry that doesn't exist. But let's say you wanted to take it on a cross-channel ferry. Do they still exist? Uh, yes, well, the surely. cross-channel um, ferries do exist, and I don't know whether they're banning them or not, but I do know that there have been recent unextinguishable fires on ferries as a result of EV cars catching fire. And um, so either they find new batteries, which is probably what they're going to do, solid state batteries or the other issue is the weight i mean electric vehicles are much much heavier than, than conventional cars that's a problem as well i don't want to make make it sound like uh, that this is a very major issue and maybe it's an issue that can be solved but it's just another roadblock in the rollout of evs and you know another thing the british government is being stupid about is saying that we have to start producing regular cars by the year 2030 whereas the europeans have kind of extend and pretend beyond 2035. It's just not feasible. It's going to destroy our car industry. We really, you know, why are they shooting themselves in both feet at the same time? Mm, well, interestingly, the um, car industry is one of the areas where UK productivity has fallen the fastest. And again, that is blamed on the sort of slew of environmental regulation that has been put on top of our car manufacturers. Um, but be that for good or bad, it's definitely affecting our productivity, which is the bad bit. Um, right. Okay. So Tesla's going bust. Uh, do you want to just leave that one there? Well, I mean, look. When I say it's going bust, they haven't had a new car for a few years. Uh, there's no sign that they're going to introduce a new car. They're cutting their prices in various jurisdictions around the world, and their uh, production rate is way higher on a quarterly basis than their sales rate. They, of course, Elon Musk talks it up as being a problem about vehicles in transit being in the wrong place, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to my mind, that's not a, not a good sign. And uh, yet their market cap can still buy the nearest seven largest car companies, which are catching up very rapidly in terms of quality in EVs and have decades, maybe 100 years more experience in some cases of producing cars and are remarkably cheap on many multiples. I mean, I, I think, you know, you could do a good trade. You could go long Toyota, short Tesla, or you could go long General Motors and go short uh, Tesla. And over the next year or so, you'll do well. And I've actually made money by shorting Tesla. It's, you know, very volatile stock. So every time it spikes up, you want to short it. And every time it goes, it looks like it's an internal decline, maybe buy it back. But ultimately, it's going to end up with a very low value relative to its current market cap. Okay, we'll get hate mail. You know that, right? You should address everybody. Well, you don't have my address, so that's good. I'm in Dubai. I've got mine. <laughs> Dubai on your way to Singapore. You're safe. Leave it all with me. Um, let's talk long, longevity, the other the other topic, or one of the other many topics I know you're very interested in. How long are we going to live, Jim? Well, we are living longer. I mean, there's a problem here because we're not living longer. Actually, life expectancy has begun to fall, particularly in the in the US, average life expectancy, obviously, um, and in the UK as well. And we've got this very high level of, of excess deaths in, well, in pretty much all Western countries, uh, presumably as a result of lack of health care during the pandemic, etc. So we're hitting a bit of a blip in the everyone living longer story. Feels like Yeah, it. I mean, I, I think that uh, the UK... 
the the rate of increase in life expectancy is very low at the moment, but it, it's not gone backwards. In the U.S., there are particular reasons. I mean, the U.S. is lamentable. You know, by 2040, and we're only talking, what, 17 years away, 35% of U.S. GDP will be spent on healthcare. I mean, that's outrageous, right? Um, yet, the life expectancy is four and a half years shorter than our own life expectancy in the U.K., which is not the highest in the world, as you know, in, uh, Singapore, Japan, Korea, and some European countries like um, Spain, uh, life expectancy is considerably considerably higher. But generally, the trajectory is slightly upwards. But the great gains coming from environmental factors in improvement in life expectancy have been, have been taken. So now we're waiting for gains from biological intervention. And there is no biological intervention yet that can keep you alive, healthier for longer. And, uh, but I do see that some things are beginning to show promise. Uh, it's take, taken longer than I expected, to be quite honest. But mm, mm. And there's some very interesting stuff happening, but it's like a duck paddling underwater. Most people don't see it. But, you know, there are definitely signs that biological intervention in a, in a poly-drug form, so in other words, lots of different interventions, could lead to us living, most importantly, healthier in later life. And secondly potentially for longer. And that would be a great relief because if people just get older and get more decrepit and frailer, first of all, they can't work. Someone's got to pay for them. Someone's got to look after them. And then the healthcare costs in the last part of their lives become untenable for most healthcare systems around the world. And uh, yeah. so we need to find some way of reducing that burden. So it's an imperative that uh, something is done to improve the robustness of old people. And, uh, you know, money's coming into the sector. Jeff Bezos has invested $3 billion in a UK company, Altos Labs, based outside of Cambridge. Google's invested $2.5 billion. There's money coming in to a variety of other companies and philanthropies and all that sort of stuff. And so I'm relatively optimistic. And uh, we just hired a uh, very top dog from AstraZeneca, to come and head up Juvenescence, and he's really very good at delivering drugs into the market. And I don't know if you know, Marin, that Astra is now the biggest drug company in the world. It's overtaken Pfizer. So most, you know, I didn't this know is that, something actually. that the UK should be trumpeting. Yeah. We have the world's biggest drug company on the London Stock Exchange, and, and no one's saying that. I'm going to tweet that the second we finish talking, and then everyone will come back and tell me it's not true, can't possibly be true because it's British. It, it, it is true. Now, how do um, how do ordinary people invest in this amazing trend? And when I asked you about this a couple of years ago, one of the things you said was just by Google because they've got fingers in all the best pies. Uh, well, that was more than two years ago. Um, but Maybe more than two years ago. Yeah, no, it was. And I think Google probably has gone, you know, is going X growth, like all these big fang stocks. Mm. But no, that's not the way to invest in this. And actually, I don't really know what Google's done in longevity because there's very little information that's coming out of them. But what I would say is that uh, watch this space. So, you know, for instance, I, Juvenescence has said that actually, it's, thank God it didn't go public because the biotech sector has been massacred. Yeah. Juvenescence has said it expects to go public by the end of next year. And I think that's that's entirely possible. And it might even go public in the UK because the center of its operations is in the UK, even though most of its investments are in the US. And um, uh, so that might be one way of playing it. But there's nothing really that I could recommend 
uh, for the average investor in longevity yet, but just keep a watching brief on it. I mean, that's that's the best that one can do. The big pharma companies have not yet dipped their toe into this area, and I'm, I'm sure that they will, but uh, not yet. And so okay. um, it's just it's it's something to keep a watching brief on. All right, we will watch and wait on that one, and it's you will be watching. Yeah, and um, if you've got to live to about- 110, you've got plenty of time to make your investments. Yeah, still got to make them at the right time. Let's talk about the other other technology area that you're very interested in and also have a vehicle for, um, agronomics. Um, so the um, the idea of agri-tech and changing environment around that, and I know you're particularly interested in, in cultivated meat, which because of you, I try very hard to think about in a positive way, um, but still find mildly repellent. Um, let's talk about what, what you're doing there and what you're interested in there. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm here in uh, Dubai in the UAE because they import 95% of their food. They happen to have a fairly forward-thinking, technocratic view of what they can do, and they also have lots of money. So I don't think it'll be very long before factories are built in the UAE to produce novel proteins. There are two elements to cellular agriculture. One is growing meat, fish, materials in laboratories using stem cells as the basis for the development of those products. And then the other is what's called precision fermentation, which is a kind of brewing process. Precision fermentation is further ahead because it's a long-established biotech process now moving into foods and materials, and it's already approved in the United States to make dairy proteins that are bioidentical to milk proteins or egg proteins that are bioidentical to albumin used in the industrial egg uh, businesses like baking, confectionery, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we, we invest in both of those. And actually, since we started agronomics, the NAV of the company has gone up by nearly four times. Uh, the share price has been very volatile and now sells like most investment trusts of this nature at a discount yeah. to its NAV. But I can tell you the NAV is genuine and the outlook is very positive. So but because of uh, our experience, my experience uh, in biotech in the last 20 years, I know that if you start your own company uh, and back scientists, entrepreneurs to develop it for you, you uh, end up with a much bigger share of the company and a much higher return on your money. So when we started Agronomics and New Agrarian, which is the other fund that we have, uh, we invested uh, in other people's businesses, and um, that's great. And those businesses are generally doing quite well. They all have products. Some of them are being approved right now. Some of them are on sale right now. But starting your own company gives you, in a white space opportunity, gives you a much bigger upside. So we started a company called Liberation Labs, and that is uh, building uh, fermenting capacity around the world for food companies to share, to act as a contract manufacturer for those Uh, producers of dairy uh, proteins or egg proteins. Our first factory will be up and running at the end of next year in the United States, and that's a $115 million factory with very, very attractive returns. And we will be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth factory in the world through Liberation Labs because no one else is anywhere close to being able to build these factories in the same way as the two people that we hired who are the world experts in this field. So agronomics ends up with a much bigger share of that company and also a very exciting industry. Our dog food, which is being done in the UK, uh, called Good Dog Food, 
I hope that company will go public before the end of this year in the United Kingdom. And I'm pretty sure that its product will be on the market and it's a cell ag uh, chicken product that will be um, sold on the UK market by the end of this year for dogs. And the dog food market is 25% of the meat market in the UK and 25% of the meat market in the United States and growing faster than the human meat market. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the US and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we got... Sorry, I just want to interrupt you briefly to be absolutely clear, because I, I, there may be people listening to this who do not understand the distinction between what we're talking about and the sort of pretend meat made out of vegetable protein, um, you know, the, the impossible and beyond, etc. So I just want to be, be clear to anyone listening that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about bioidentical meats made in labs. Yeah, so meats that so don't I just have... just wanted to get that clear. Right, meats that don't have the same environmental impact as growing conventional foods and uh, meats that don't have, you know, 10 billion animals slaughtered every year and 80 billion held in captivity waiting to be slaughtered on an annual basis, which is the current situation uh, displacing the water supply around the world with lots of contaminants, lots of antibiotic use, lots of hormone use, none of that. So this is what I call clean meat. Some people might call it Frankenstein meat or, you know, synthetic meat. It's not. It's real meat. It's grown in a lab. You can't catch cancer from it. It is identical to the best of uh, farmed uh, meat and the same goes for fish and the same goes for leather and the same goes for other things as well including cocoa um, coffee cotton so that's mm. completely different to the as that's plant-based foods that we don't invest in so that okay you know, yeah, i just want to be clear on that 
you and I could set up a plant-based company tomorrow called at Merrin and Jim's Kitchen, uh, and we'd face huge amounts of competition. We'd be producing highly processed foods. We'd be uh, struggling to get space on the supermarket shelves, etc. So that's and, not as, and as we've seen from these companies, people don't really want to buy that stuff anyway. Well, there are there is a market. You know, for they it. thought I had, they I, did. I, I they... had a Beyond Burger for lunch here in Dubai today. I have to say, you know, I've gone off them because they just don't they don't do it for me. But we don't eat meat at home, so obviously, occasionally, it's quite nice to have a sort of a Sats one. But very soon, we'll be able to have the real meat produced in the lab. And two companies have had their chicken products approved in the United States already. I wanted to say just about good dog food that Pets at Home, which everyone in the UK is familiar with, it's a multi-billion pound company, a really, really good company, has invested in good dog food. And it's going to be its exclusive distributor of the food for two or three years. So that's a really great endorsement from one of the leaders in the industry. Um, so it well, seems like a brilliant way to get people used to the idea. Uh, you know, it's a great market entry point, isn't it? People get used to the idea that they're feeding their dogs real meat, but not meat that is affecting, uh, you know, animal lives and the planet, etc. And then it's not much of a leap to move into it themselves. Exactly. And I'm going to tell you a very quick anecdote about being in Dubai. I met a guy who uh, who's a senior sort of investment chap and, and during the pandemic he, he and his family were stuck in dubai and every day they would go to the same sushi restaurant because the chefs were tested there every day for covid and uh, so he's eating the sushi every single day and after the pandemic he goes and gets uh, a medical checkup and his mercury levels were off the scale yeah. because yeah. tuna fish is full of mercury so you should only eat it once a week and also it's got microplastics in it Next year, Blue Nalu, the U.S. company that we're investors in, will have a tuna fish product on the market with no mercury and no um, no uh, microplastics and uh, no despoilation of the ocean. So it's not just about meat. It's about all sorts of other stuff. And no suffering fish. No suffering fish also seems like a good bit. Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 I eat fish and I, I try and pretend that, you know, they don't suffer and they're all humanely treated and so forth. But, uh, you know, this is not going to be displacing the farming industry, particularly good farming industry that such as is practiced in the United Kingdom for, for a long, long time. This is basically taking the margins where the Indians and the Chinese want extra protein and quite rightly, but if they if they want the protein that that they want to get, they're going to collapse the environment. So this is like the this is like the buffer really zone and it will take many, many, many years uh, particularly in building the infrastructure for this to take a considerable chunk out of the meat or food market. Um, but nonetheless, it's a very large addressable market, and it's one that is super exciting. And ultimately, it can produce food lower than the cost of conventionally farmed food. But ultimately, you know, it could be 30 years away. So um, this is not something I'm suggesting is going to eradicate farming anytime soon. Okay. Um, that is very interesting and useful long-term information. Now, Jim, I've had you for long enough. I know you've got better things to do than continue to chit-chat with me. I've but got nothing are, better to do than to talk to you. But unfortunately, uh, the Longevity Forum, which I'm a uh, co-host of, is uh, having its uh, sort of once every two-week meeting as we run into the next cycle for this no coming November. And um, so Okay, well, let me just up. ask you one quick final question then. It's a tough one. Hardest they're one yet. Tough. They're all tough. No, this is the toughest. Bitcoin or gold? Oh, 100% gold. And yeah, I was teasing about it being difficult. 
No, I mean, and, and I think you'd answer the same way. I mean, if you look at it, of gold course. is very close to its all-time high. It's retained value. I mean, you're the big gold bug, so it's retained value all the way through. Uh, and Bitcoin, it, it may be at twenty-six or twenty-seven thousand dollars, but it was at sixty-four thousand. So the volatility would kill you. Um, and whereas gold, although it's volatile, it's nowhere near as volatile as Bitcoin. And I much prefer to look at the shiny stuff in my safe than to think about someone trying to hack into my internet safe and see my Bitcoins from me. So I don't think Bitcoin's got any real, look, I'm, this is more hate mail, right? So not no real mm -hmm. validity. Um, I think that the Americans are particularly going to crack down on the exchanges and there's going to be a lot of announcements over the next year or so about that. Um, and it's just going to be, there'll be no contest. A gold, by the way, is going to go to $3,000 an ounce in the next 18 months, and you've got to get on the bandwagon. You keep on saying this, Marin. You're so right. Everyone has to have an exposure to gold. Everyone. Brilliant. That was the right answer, and you didn't make it complicated at all. Um, thank you. Now, there is one final thing that we must talk about before you go. We've talked about lots of the wonderful and exciting and interesting things that you do, but we haven't talked about an interesting turn you've taken in your career recently, which is writing a children's book. Oh, thank you, Marin. Um, yeah, I, I wrote this book. All the proceeds go to two charities, Compassion and World Farming, and not just the profits, all the proceeds, and a dog shelter in Ibiza that's very close to our hearts. We have seven dogs, as you know. I know. Uh, so one of the story is centered around one of the dogs, uh, Juno, and it's her adventure in rescuing, not regularly farmed, but cruelly farmed um, uh, animals, and then coming across sell ag and it's aimed at eight to 12 year olds although it's a kind of wide band so i really enjoy writing this and um you know hopefully some people will will buy it and read it and the money all goes to those wonderful charities brilliant jim thank you so juno's much arc. juno's arc juno's arc it's called i have a copy uh, my children are not too old to read it <laughs> thank you so much jim thanks marion Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Sam Asadi and Mohamed Farouk. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks, of course, to Jim Mellon. Thank you, Jim. And to John Stepek. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes, and if you're really lucky, he'll tell you more about the detail of the matters we were talking about our introduction to this week's show, and why would you not sign up to that? The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.